You can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. We're looking at Hebrews 1, 1 through 14 this morning. Uh, we're, we're coming up on uh, another delightful presidential election season. And uh, even though we're coming up on it, it seems like it's been happening for so long. Uh, it was interesting to note, just to go and look back, it was over a year ago, March 23rd, 2015, that uh, uh, Ted Cruz, who's still a candidate, announced his campaign. It was a little less than a month later, April 12th, 2015, that Hillary Clinton announced her campaign. A month later, Bernie Sanders announced his in May, uh, May 26th. Donald Trump announced his campaign June 16th, 2015. And uh, the other major candidate, at least who still makes the headlines, John Kasich announced his campaign uh, finally the month after that in July, uh, July 21st, 2015. Uh, according to my research, there's four, uh, at least four Democratic candidates who have already dropped out of the race so far. And uh, in the Republican side, there are 14 candidates, or at least 14 candidates, who have already ended their campaigns. Uh, so technically, we don't know who the, the candidates are going to be in the, the uh, presidential election, but we do know that once we do know who they're, they're going to be, that's when the real election really heats up. So uh, if you've been paying attention to all this, you're probably tired of it already. And if you haven't been paying attention to it, uh, you're probably tired of avoiding it. What's, uh, as, we, as we look at all this, we, we ask ourselves, what comfort or insight uh, might we gain from a text that was written to Jewish Christian converts almost 2,000 years ago? Let's look at Hebrews 1, verses 1-14. through 14. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us, to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are My Son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to, the which, to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits 
sent out for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would illumine our minds and open the eyes of our hearts to behold the glory of Your Son. God, we know that our hearts will ultimately be restless until we find our rest in You. So God, would You, even as we look at a text that is slightly more complex than others, give us focus and attention and a desire to know You are gone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if we were going to boil down the, the message of Hebrews chapter 1, if we're going to boil it down as, as uh, simple as we could, what's the author saying? He's saying, Jesus is supreme. Jesus is supreme. If we're going to uh, expand on that a little bit, he's saying Jesus is supreme as the final prophet and priest and king. He, in the verses 1 through 3, he, he compares Jesus to the prophets of old. The prophets of old, they spoke long ago. They spoke in many parts and in many ways, but Jesus has spoke finally and definitively. He's spoken finally and definitively as God's Son, as the heir of all things, as, as the creator of the world, as the radiance of God's glory, as the exact imprint of His nature, as the one who upholds the universe by the word of His power, uh, this is a very, very different prophet. This, this, is, this is a prophet like none has ever seen before. This is the final and definitive prophet who has revealed God to us. He's, he's not just supreme as the final prophet. He's supreme as the final priest. Uh, he's a priest who's made purification for sins and then sat down. That means the, the, the purification ended. He, he made purification that was so sufficient that he was able to stop his work as a priest and sit down. He, he's the final priest, the final prophet, and he's the final king. He, uh, in verse 3, we see that after he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the highest throne that someone can sit down upon. So if you've heard of Jesus before, as if you've heard the term the final prophet, priest, and king, uh, Hebrews 1, particularly verses 1 through 3, is exactly where that comes from. Jesus is, he's supreme as prophet, priest, and king. And in verse 4, we see that he's superior to angels. So this morning we want to look at what is the significance of Jesus' superiority to angels? And we also want to look at the significance of the Scriptures that the author of Hebrews uses to demonstrate Jesus' superiority to angels. So, just looking at first at the significance of His superior, superiority to angels. Immediately, if you're like me, you ask, why is this necessary? Why does the author feel the need to tell us that, that Jesus is superior to angels. We've just gone through this list of all these incredible things. It just seems kind of obvious that Jesus as God, as the final prophet, priest, and king, he, he, of course He's greater than angels. So, so why the need to tell us He's greater than angels? Why, at least why the need to tell the audience of, of this letter originally who, uh, why Jesus is superior to angels? We know more about the, the work of angels than what angels are like. We have more descriptions about what angels do in Scripture than, than what they're actually like. Uh, angels are referred to over 200 times. They're referred to by a whole host of different names. Living creatures, cherubim, seraphim, sons of God, sons of the mighty, spirits, holy ones, watchers, principalities and powers, thrones. 
Uh, we know that there's large numbers of angels. They're described with words like camps and thrones and thousands and, and hosts. Um, we know that in terms of angels' work, they carry out God's desires. They worship God day and night. They guard the sanctuary of God from intrusion. Uh, they bring the Word of God at times. Uh, they minister to God's people. That's what angels do, and, and we know even less about what they're like. Uh, what, what we can gather is that they, they're spiritual beings. Uh, they appear, appear to be eternal beings, just like uh, humans are. Uh, they're, they're apparent unique, or they have apparent unique individuality. We know that angels aren't given uh, in marriage. So it's kind of speculated that since uh, angels don't marry, they, they don't reproduce, or they don't sort of exist in families like, like humans do. But we know that, human, that, we know that angels are very great. Uh, we have examples of scriptures of people being tempted to worship angels, and we have examples of people being very uh, fearful upon encountering angels at different times. We know that angels are much greater and much more powerful than humans. And we know that angels are observers of the divine drama. We, we see that they're, they apparently watch redemptive history unfold with, with apparent great interest. We look at texts like Ephesians 3.10 and 1 Peter 1.12. But there's this sort of ironic role that angels have because although they have this immense greatness and they're so much more powerful than us, it's humans who are created in the image of God. Though, though angels are so immensely great, uh, it is not uh, humans, or sorry, it's not angels to whom God has subjected the world to come. Uh, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says that it's humans who are one day to judge angels. And even right now and throughout redemptive history, uh, although angels are so immensely great and so powerful, it's angels who come and serve and minister to humans. So that they have this somewhat ironic role. But, but why the need to demonstrate that, that Jesus is superior to these, to these beings? What, what is the author's point here? There are a number of things we could point to, uh, but what seems most clear is that as we look at verses 1-3 through three already, the, we know that the author of Hebrews is making this comparison between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So the Old Covenant, which is characterized by long ago and, and prophecy that was in many times and in many ways, and then now, in the New Covenant, uh, a final and definitive prophecy. And uh, we know from the New Testament that there's this sense in which the Old Covenant uh, was thought of as being mediated by angels. Uh, we actually don't pick up on that very clearly in the Old Testament, but it's New Testament texts like Acts 7.53 and Galatians 3.19 that look back at the Old Covenant and say it's described as being mediated by angels. But that's not being compared with this New Covenant that God is saying it is mediated by Jesus Christ. It's mediated by God Himself. So there's the sense in which Jesus is greater, He's superior as the mediator of this new covenant compared to angels who are the mediators of this old covenant. I discovered this past week that Google will teach you how to pray to angels if you want. I don't remember exactly how I got there, but you type in the right thing into Google and Google will teach you how to pray to angels. Google's so helpful, isn't it? Google will, Google will teach you anything. But in light of Hebrews 1, uh, that's actually something that's insane to do. That's something that uh, apparently people are interested in today. Uh, and we know actually that's been, that's been true for, for centuries. Uh, but in light of Hebrews 1, there is no reason why Christians would ever pray to angels. If, 
if there was ever a time to pray to angels, it was at least 2,000 years ago. Because at that time, there was a sense in which perhaps the only way to God was, was mediated through angels. But in light of the new covenant now, we have access to God through Jesus Christ. We pray to God the Father, and we do so through Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit. So, as we look back at verses as one, verses 1 through 3, we see Christ's superiority to angels kind of in the same way in terms of this list of things that make Jesus superior uh, as this, this new covenant uh, person. Uh, he, he's a superior prophet, superior priest, superior king. But, but now we look forward and we see that Christ is superior to angels on the basis of, of seven Old Testament texts. The author quotes seven Old Testament text. It's interesting that he, he essentially quotes the whole Old Testament because he, he quotes at least all three parts of it. The, the Torah, the law, the prophets, and the writings, kind of representing the whole of the Old Testament. And it's now at this point in Hebrews 1 that the things get a little bit perplexing. So let's, let's turn and look now at verses 4 through 14 and kind of take them each as they come. Uh, we see in Jesus, and we see in, in verse 4 that Jesus inherits a greater name. Uh, the argument in verses 4 and 5 is, is easy to understand. It, it's the way the ar- author makes the argument that gets confusing. The auth- the, if you look at verses 4 and 5, the argument's pretty clear. The author's saying something akin to, Jesus is greater than angels because God has spoken to Jesus things that He has never spoken to angels. And that, that's basically what he's saying. So that's easy enough to understand. But, but the way he makes the argument is, is where it gets confusing. We would expect the author, in verse, starting in verse 5, we, we'd expect him to quote something like Mark 1.11. We'd expect him to say something like, uh, Jesus is greater than angels. And then verse 5, for, to which of the angels has God ever said, Mark 1.11, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased, which was spoken at Jesus' baptism. That's what we might expect him to say. But instead, the author quotes seven Old Testament texts that were never actually spoken to Jesus of Nazareth. Let's look at verse 5. Let's, let's take these as they come. In verses 1-3, through three, uh, there, there's a sense in which the focus is on the glory, the majestic glory of God's, God's Son. Sorry, the majestic glory of God's Son. And, and as we look at verses 4-14, through 14, the focus system shifts to the majestic glory of David's Son, And we see that as he starts to quote these Old Testament texts. So we look at verse 5. In verse 5, essentially the author is, is, is making the case that Jesus inherits the position of the Davidic king. And the first text he quotes there, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That, that, is, that is a citation from Psalm 2.7. Now, now, what do we know about Psalm 27? Psalm 27 is a psalm about the victorious rule of the Davidic king, the, 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 of David's throne, his, the, his kingdom. It's a psalm about his kingdom. We, we get these amazing, amazing promises in, in Psalm 2. We get verses like verse 2. The kings set themselves up against the Lord and against his anointed. Verse 6, God speaks and he says, I have set my king on Zion. Verse 7 is what's quoted in Hebrews 1 here. He says, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or we look at the bottom. Verse 12, we have, we have words like this. It says, Kiss the son, lest he be angry. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
So as we look at Psalm 2, and we, we ask questions, okay, so who is the Lord's anointed? Who, who is the Lord's king? Who, who is the Lord's son? And uh, reading this verse in the year 2016 and looking back and knowing all we do about Jesus, we just so clearly and automatically see that it points to Jesus. But the thing is, this, this psalm actually meant something for at least 900 years before Jesus was on the scene. So just in the immediate literal sense, who is Psalm 2 talking about in terms of the Lord's anointed, His King, His Son? It's talking about the Davidic King. It's probably talking about Solomon who, who took over uh, after David's reign. So there's a sense in which the kings of the earth, they set themselves up against the Davidic king, against, against Solomon. And, and it's, it's these kings who are being warned. They should kiss the son. They should take refuge in him rather than, than uh, opposing him and setting themselves up against Solomon's reign. But although this was spoken of this Old Testament Davidic king, the author of Hebrews is making the case that this actually applies to Jesus. And in a, in a fulfilling sense, this actually applies to Jesus in a way that's, that's much greater than it ever applied to Solomon. Jesus inherits the name of the Davidic Messianic King. And the second quotation essentially makes the same point. If you look at the second quotation in verse 5, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That, that is, comes from 2 Samuel 7. It comes from what we read earlier. 2 Samuel, as we consider the context of that verse, <clears throat> 2 Samuel is one of the most significant chapters in the whole Bible. It's certainly one of the most significant chapters of the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel 7, we see God giving promises, giving blessing like He has not done uh, since basically the beginning of the Bible. If you start in Genesis 1 and you just start reading straight through, when you get to 2 Samuel 7, you realize that God has not made promises like this that He's making to David in 2 Samuel 7. He hasn't made promises this great and this profound since He made promises to Abraham way back in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. Uh, th these promises are remarkable. Uh, he makes promises to David. God makes promises to David. In uh, 2 Samuel 7, like, like, I will make for you a great name, and, and I will give you rest from your enemies, and I will raise up offspring after you from your own body, and, and I will establish the throne of your son's kingdom forever. And then the, the verse that's quoted in verse 5 here of Hebrews, he promises David, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now once again, <clears throat> we ask what... Who is this talking about? Who is this offspring? Uh, who is this person who, who's going to inherit this throne that's going to last forever? And once again, it's the exact same case. In, in the immediate, literal sense, this, this applies to Solomon. This applies to Solomon, and it, it applies to the subsequent descendants of David who are going to sit on his throne. But although this was spoken about the Old Testament Davidic king, Hebrews, our text this morning, quotes this verse and says this applies to Jesus. And this actually solves a significant problem that had existed up until Jesus' time because we have these amazing promises made to David in 2 Samuel 7, but then we read about Solomon and we see that Solomon never actually comes to embrace all, all the fullness of these blessings that come from these promises. Solomon doesn't ever embraces them and, and certainly no one who comes after him comes even close either. But Jesus does embrace these promises. Jesus does fulfill these promises in a way that no one ever has yet up until 
this point. So Jesus inherits the name of the, of the Messianic Davidic King. Jesus inherits the promises that were made in Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7. And just to kind of step back and just remember what, why we're looking at this here, no angel has ever fulfilled promises like this. No angel has ever, ever fulfilled promises that go back a thousand years. And, and if we had more time, we'd see that these promises actually go back another thousand years to Abraham and ultimately all the way back to the garden with Adam and Eve. Jesus inherits the name of the Davidic king. Let's shift and look at verse 6. At verse 6, the author is making a case that Jesus inherits the right to be worshipped as God's victorious firstborn son. This is probably the most, uh, one of the most interesting or difficult uh, texts that he, he cites here. He, in, in, in verse 6, the author of Hebrews, <coughs> he says, again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, <coughs> excuse me, he says, let all God's angels worship him. That text is from Deuteronomy 32:43. Uh, you don't need to turn there, uh, but we just want to consider what's happening in, in Deuteronomy 32:43, and how does that text make Jesus greater than angels? Well, in Deuteronomy 30:43, first, I guess before we look at Deuteronomy 32, um, it's important to note how how the author introduces. This text. So you look at verse 6, and, and what the writer of Hebrews says is when he brings the firstborn into the world. Uh, it's significant to just notice that the, the, the concept of the firstborn has, has a very long and significant uh, pattern throughout the Scripture. There, there's an emphasis placed on, on the firstborn, um, and it has a lot of different implications. But the one that we're most interested in is, is the fact that uh, before the Exodus, right? So, I mean, God's people are in Egypt, in slavery, and uh, God's about to rescue them from Pharaoh and from being slaves, and it's, it's a miraculous rescue. God refers to this collective people as his firstborn son. That happens before the Exodus. He refers to them as that. After the Exodus, and after the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, and after they wander in the, in the wilderness for 40 years, uh, before they're about to cross uh, the Jordan River and go into the land of Canaan, uh, Moses teaches Israel that this, this firstborn son, he teaches them a song. In fact, God tells him to teach them this song. Uh, and, and the reason, uh, and in the song, Moses calls, calls on the angels to worship God. And the reason he calls them to worship God is because God has miraculously rescued his firstborn out of Egypt. And now God's about to bring Israel, his, his firstborn, into the world to triumph victoriously over the wicked Canaanites and ultimately bless all the nations, bless all the world. But, of course, we, we know how that ultimately ends as we read the narrative of the Old Testament. Just like Solomon, who isn't even on the scene yet, uh, Israel fails to embrace all of these promises. Israel fails to do this. But now we're, at, we're in Hebrews 1, and the author of Hebrews 1 is saying the angels, once again, have a chance to worship God in a similar way. Once again, God has brought His firstborn into the world, and, and, and this time, the firstborn has been victoriously triumphant. Uh, this, this time, it has gone incredibly well. And In fact, uh, based on how successful Jesus is in accomplishing, uh, destroying the enemies of God and, and blessing the whole world, uh, He actually 
earns the right to be worshipped himself. So there's even a greater sense in which uh, the angels worship God and, and they worship the firstborn son here just by virtue of the fact of who he is and what he's done. So, so Jesus inherits the right to be worshipped as God's firstborn son. There is no angel who has been worshipped for being victoriously triumphant like this before. No angel has ever done anything like this before. We turn and look at verse 7. Verse 7 uh, is the only verse that looks at the Old Testament kind of from the perspective of looking at the angels. So all these, all, all these other texts have to do with, with the sun, but verse 7 has to do with the angels. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And it's a, it's a, uh, he, it's a text from Psalm 104, verse 4. And uh, we look at Psalm 104, and again, we ask what's going on here. Uh, you know, you got these angels and you got these ministers. Uh, these are essentially the same, same group. If you go back and look at Psalm 104, uh, it might say uh, messengers and ministers. Uh, there, there's a sense in which the, the, the messengers and the ministers, these are all servants. These are all the same beings. And, and what the psalmist uh, is not trying to communicate is that God turns angels into fire or God turns uh, angels into wind. Uh, that's kind of how we can look at first glance. He makes his angels wins. <clears throat> but rather, uh, it, it has this, uh, this sense that the angels bring God's wind. They bring God's fire. They're, they're his servants and ministers and, and messengers. Um, so what is the author trying to do? What's, what's, what, why is Hebrews quoting this and saying this is what angels are like? Well, it's just reaffirming and, and clarifying this is the role of angels. That they're, they're ministers, they're messengers, they're servants. But that's compared with verses 8 and 9 and then verses 10 through 12. So let's look at verses 8 and 9, verses 10 through 12. <clears throat> In verses 8 and 9, the author makes the claim that Jesus inherits the anointing to rule and reign forever. Verses 8 and 9, the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. It's, it, it's interesting, because as we read this in, in Hebrews 1, he says, but of the Son, he says, this is verse 8 of Hebrews 1, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And we assume, like many other psalms, that if you're familiar with psalms, that this is a psalm that's written about God. But if you go back and you look at Psalm 45, you find out that Psalm 45 is not a psalm about God. It's, it's not written in praise of God. Psalm 45 is a song that's written of the glory of the Davidic king. It's, it's another one of these connections to King David and King David's kingdom. And, it, and it's reaffirming these great promises that were made to David. It's, it's a, this is a kingdom that's going to last forever. So we assumed, though, that this was about God because he actually says, God, your throne, O God, <clears throat> is forever and ever. So who is this? Who is this psalm about? Well, this psalm is about this is is about a human being. Uh, there, he calls him God in the sense that the, the king sort of represents God. He he kind of has godlike characteristics and that he rules over the kingdom. Uh, the Bible has this feels this freedom uh, to do these amazing things that are <clears throat> somewhat confusing, but that they're glorious when we when we look at them closely. Uh, the Bible has this, takes this freedom to refer to Jesus, who, who is the Son of God, who's existed for eternity, and call Him a firstborn. Now, we know that someone who's existed for eternity was never born. 
Uh, but the Bible just takes this liberty. It calls Jesus the firstborn son. And then the Bible takes liberty on the other side and, and calls human kings God, even though uh, the author of this knows that this, the king isn't God, and he knows that he, the king doesn't possess divine attributes. That's why it's so important that as we read Scripture, we don't simply want to know what, what it says. We want to know what, what it means. So, uh, although this is spoken about the Davidic king, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews quotes 6 and 7 and says this applies to Jesus. Uh, although it was spoken about someone else, this applies to Jesus. And thus, Jesus is the one, if you look at the end, verse 9, He is the one who in- inherits the anointing to rule and to reign forever. It's His scepter. It's His, it's his kingdom. So then we, we note the comparison here again, right? Because we just looked at verse 7. Angels... They're servants. They're messengers. Uh, they're ministers. But in verses 8 and 9, Jesus, He's anointed to rule and to reign forever. There's a stark contrast between angels, the role of angels, and the role of Jesus. It's also, it's also contrasted with verses 10 and 12. If you look at verses 10 and 12, the author of Hebrews, uh, he cites Psalm 102. Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. And in this citation, as, as the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 102 here in verses 10 through 12, he makes perhaps the most astounding claim that he's made so far. Je- the, the author of Hebrews makes the claim that Jesus is, is the Creator. We, we look at the context of Psalm 102. Psalm 102 is, is a psalm of lament. Uh, literally, if you go and look, it, it's a psalm of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. This would be a great psalm to go meditate on in times of despair and in times of trouble. Uh, it, you read the psalmist appears to be uh, despairing over the, the shortness of life and he's, he's despairing over opposition from his enemies and he's despairing over what, what he feels to be affliction from, from God himself. But the psalmist ultimately finds hope in God. He, he remembers that, that the Lord is a good king, that, that the Lord laid the foundations of the earth, that, that he's not dependent upon anything to exist, but he's self-sustaining. He remembers that the Lord will never change, and so the Lord can be trusted to fulfill his promises. But this is why the quotation of this verse is so significant in Hebrews 1. The writer of Hebrews says, this psalm, which was spoken to God, was spoken to Jesus. He's essentially saying, Jesus, Jesus is Yahweh of the Old Testament. This would have been incredibly significant to a Jewish audience. And it's very, very likely that Hebrews is a Jewish audience. That's why it's called Hebrews. Jesus is Yahweh. Uh, if verse 6 hinted at this, if you go back and look at verse 6, that was the Deuteronomy text. If that hinted at it, this makes it absolutely explicitly clear. Jesus is better than angels because He's the Creator of the world. Jesus is Yahweh. We've actually already had a taste of this up back up in, in uh, verse 2, if you look, where it says that this is, this is the one through whom God created the world. Jesus is better than angels because He's the Creator of the world. Jesus is Yahweh of the Old Testament. Finally, we get the seventh verse that's quoted in verse 13. If you want to look at verse 13 of Hebrews 1, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand 
until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is a quotation from another psalm. Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is an incredibly significant psalm uh, in the book of Hebrews, uh, but also just in the New Testament as a whole. This is, this is one of the psalms that was quoted uh, numerous times throughout the New Testament, and especially in the book of Hebrews. Uh, what's unique and interesting about Psalm 110, uh, that Psalm 110 is actually attributed to David. It's a psalm in which David sort of expresses his faith in the promises that God made, made to him in 2 Samuel 7. And uh, what, what's unique about it, what even distinguishes it from other psalms like Psalm 2, is, is that there's this sense in which nobody in David's day seems to be able to fulfill uh, the descriptions of what's written in Psalm 110. Uh, so David seems to embrace the promises of God in Psalm 110, uh, but it seems to look forward to another, even sort of another beyond, Solomon. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this and says, uh, wonder no more who this is. This is Jesus. This is Jesus, the son of David. So Jesus is the one to whom God says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemy is a footstool for your feet. God has never said to an angel, sit at my right hand. He's never said that to an angel. Jesus inherits a greater seat of honor at God's right hand. So again, what, what is the message of all this? Jesus is supreme. Jesus is absolutely supreme. He, he's supreme as the final prophet, priest, and king in verses 1-3, through three, and then in verses 4-14, through 14, after verses 1 through 3, where there was this caref- these careful sort of positions and titles and, uh, uh, and roles of Jesus, uh, now in verses 4 through 14, the author has chosen very carefully these Old Testament texts that establish why Jesus is supreme. He, he's greater than angels. He's greater than angels because he's inherited the name of the Davidic king who's enthroned forever. 2 Samuel 7. He's, he's greater than angels because he now reigns as the Davidic king. Psalm 2. He's greater than angels because he's inherited the right to be worshipped as God's firstborn son. Deuteronomy 32. He's greater than angels because angels are created, but Jesus is the creator. Psalm 104. Jesus is greater than angels because while it's the angel's role to, to serve and minister, it's Jesus' role to rule and to reign forever. Jesus is greater than angels because because despite the fact, or angels are their servants, their ministers, Jesus laid the foundations of the world. Jesus is self-sustaining. Jesus is unchanging. Psalm 102. Finally, Jesus is greater than angels because he has overcome his enemy and he sits at the right hand of God, reigning alongside him. Psalm 110. In Hebrews 1, we see the glory of of Jesus. It, it's difficult to even fully embrace uh, the glory of Jesus in Hebrews 1. In verses 1 through 3, we, we see the majestic glory of, of God's Son. And then in verses 4 through 14, we see the majestic glory of David's Son. And in these two senses, uh, we have what is the glory of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is Savior of the world by virtue of the fact that He is the Son of God. He is fully God, and, and He has absorbed the wrath of God, the eternal wrath of God for sinners. He has stood in their place. But, but Jesus is also Savior of the world in that He, he was fully... This on? All right. I had good momentum going too. All right. 
<clears throat> Jesus is Savior of the world by, by virtue of the fact that he's fully gone and he is fully man. And, and in these two things that are brought together, this is the glory of Jesus. We, we, here we see the uniqueness of the Christian solution to the human problem. That the human problem is not to be taken light of. It, it is not to be thought of as something small. Uh, it is so deep, it takes much more than a mere man to solve the human problem. We have the whole Old Testament to demonstrate for this. Uh, but, but it is so deep that it takes even more than a great angel to solve it, solve it for us. It, it is so deep, we, we need more than a man, we need more than an angel. And here in Hebrews 1, we, we see that the glory of Jesus rebukes our contentment with, with less than greater saviors. So there's a sense in which Hebrews 1 is resounding with Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. But, but we tend to go, we're, we're content with smaller saviors. We're content with lesser. You know, we don't think we need someone greater to solve our problem. And since we don't take our problem that seriously, uh, we think perhaps angels can fix us. You know, I can type it into Google, I can pray to angels, and that will fix my problem. Or, or perhaps morality can fix us, or, or philanthropy can fix us. We think psychology can fix us, or nutrition can fix us, or technology, or, or education, or pharmaceuticals, or, or meditation, or legislation, or political officials. These will never fix our problem. God has provided something much better, much superior. We see in Hebrews 1 the majestic glory of David's son, who is God's son. The, the, the problem, the human problem, is much, much deeper than, than we like to admit. The, the Bible calls it sin. And, and in sin we believed lies rather than truth. And so we need truth. We, we need God's word. And, and we have that finally and ultimately in Jesus. Uh, in sin we're unclean and, and we're guilty uh, and we're, we're alienated from God and, and we're slaves so, so we need atonement. We need forgiveness. And we have that finally and ultimately in Jesus. In sin, we're rebellious and, and we failed to rule ourselves. So, so we need authority. We, we need God's rule and we have that finally and definitively, definitively in, in Jesus. Uh, we started by reflecting on just the current standing of, of the political situation and the upcoming Political presidential election. Uh, I'll never forget. I'll never forget where I was seven years ago, uh, as I was driving uh, back to Brookings from the Twin Cities. I was in the Twin Cities for a, a pastors' conference, and this was the spring I was graduating from college. And uh, you'll have to forgive me. I was a little naive. Uh, my parents put me in public school. And uh, I'd never really reflected on government very much. And, of course, we had just kind of come through a presidential election, and, and the, the new president was, was in power. And I was just reflecting on, on, uh, on just the struggle we have to, to elect someone who's good. And, and sort of even the problems, I was realizing the problems in democracy, because although democracy gives the power to the people, the problem is people are sinful, and if people are sinful, we're, we're going to elect people who are in our own image. And um, I thought, you know, maybe democracy isn't isn't so good. You know, how could we solve this? How could we how could we get ourselves to a place that would be better? You know, so we could actually get something done. 
And I thought, you know, I want maybe maybe monarchies aren't as bad as 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 we say they are. No, I mean, I know that's a terrible thing to say, but I remember thinking that. And I thought, you know, if we could just maybe we could just get a good monarch, a good ruler to rule us, that would be better. But I knew right away. I mean, I knew I knew, I knew a little history at least, and uh, I know we, we've just got example of example of how how that goes so terribly wrong too. Because even if you get someone good, it's just a generation or two later, and and you've got abuse and. Uh, You've got oppression and you've got things that aren't good. And I was just realizing really for the first time uh, that uh, we're, we're in such a hopeless situation in terms of, of, of finding any hope, of, in terms of getting to a place where we have something that's good in terms of government and, and leadership and, and rulers. And uh, I just remember just a sense of kind of sadness and depressing sent, setting in that I I never really kind of connected all these dots before. And I, I know I probably should have years before this, but I, I just hadn't. And I'll never forget, I'm on the, the highway, uh, 19, I'm crossing over the border into South Dakota, and it was so silly. I, what I thought was, I, wouldn't it be great if we could just find some ruler we could trust? Uh, someone we could trust, we, we wouldn't, it wouldn't depend on all the sinful people, someone we could trust who would be, who would be great and who we could just know would rule forever. And even as I thought forever, I just got chills. And I, I mean, I remember my eyes even uh, filled with uh, tears for a moment. I just thought, oh my goodness, I know the answer to this. We have that king. And there will never be a primary. There will never be an election. In fact, he already reigns on God's throne. He is a good king. He, he loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. He, he is he is good and and compassionate and 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 he will never change. He will always be good. He, we we don't have the promise that he is going to come and reign someday. I mean, of course, we have that in one sense, but we we know from Hebrews that he has made purification for sins and he has sat down at God's right hand. So praise God that we have a King right now, and, and things only look up from here. Let's pray. Father, the glory of your Son is astounding. The glory of your Son as the Son of God, as the one who created the world, as the one who's the exact imprint of your nature, is wonderful. We we can only wonder at all the implications and all all with all the attributes really mean of who he is. But in, in your divine wisdom and in, in your wonderful plan, he's not even just the Son of God, as if there could be just the Son of God. He he is also the Son of David. He is the one who has inherited these tremendous promises. He is the one who has been ultimately victorious over your enemies, who are ultimately our enemies. And even when we were included in those enemies, he is he has made a way for us to be reconciled to you through his life and death and resurrection. God, I pray that you would make the reigning rule of Christ so central in our hearts that our hope would not diminish, that, that it would not be small, but that it would be great, and that even in the face of great opposition, we would take great joy in knowing that Jesus is the King 
of the universe. Um, the basis of the fact that he is your son. And he is David's son forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.